Welcome to the next episode of the Thinking Humans podcast. I'm Christine McKinnon and with me today is Catalina Burge. We're part of the intelligence team at Dentsu International ANZ. At Dentsu Intelligence, we love understanding humans, all the interesting things they're doing now and the crazy stuff they will be doing tomorrow. We're seeing so many changes in the way people interact with each other, their communities and brands. And of course, technology is transforming our lives every day. Keeping pace, let alone staying ahead of of all these change, is the most significant challenge facing marketers today. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about data consciousness or how we feel about brands using our data. Joining us from Singapore, we have the lovely Jonathan Edwards, our APAC Head of Data and Transformation. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me, Christine. Our pleasure. So, Jonathan and Kat, we're going to discuss the future of customer relationships that are built on data because we all know, moving forward, brands are going to have data to be able to understand their customers. Kat, this has been a project that we've both loved working on for several years now. For the sake of the listeners today, explain what is the Data Consciousness Project. So the Denso Data Consciousness Project, DCP, is an annual study of the relationship between consumers and the data they produce. The study seeks to understand how consumers feel about and respond to brands accessing their data, how they are responding to the technology that brands are developing, and how they are expecting brands and media companies to increase the value of experience delivered in return for their data. So this is our fourth year of the study, and this is the first year that we have conducted the study across 14 APAC countries. Across these four years, we've really seen the outputs of the study evolve. In 2017, when we started, what we were seeing was what we called a data awakening in consumers. It was post the Cambridge Analytical scandal, and there was this heightened awareness of brands accessing data. Moving forward to 2018, we saw that consumers were evolving their attitudes towards data and brands. They were at a point where they could see some benefit when brands were taking their data, and we we called that data opportunism. And we started to see that people were being offered rewarding experiences by brands, and in turn, they were actually happy to exchange their data. Move forward to 2020, and of course, what we had was the start of COVID. And we saw a complete shift in consumers' attitudes toward data. Firstly, because during COVID, people were dependent on data to actually understand what was going on in the world, what was going on in our country. We started to see that Australians were not only appreciating the value of their own personal data, but the value of collective data and the power of data for collective good, which was this shift in perspective that we saw from me to we, and we called it data collectivism. Skip to 2022, and what we see is that consumers' data consciousness is still very high. However, some consumers are feeling data weariness or resignation to a certain extent. They demand relevant experiences from brands and they relinquish their data in order to obtain them, but they also want data privacy and protection. And we know that the news and the coverage of data privacy and protection is increasing and it's becoming more widely understood. Consumers are now taking more steps to protect their data 
but they also feel a lack of control and they're expecting institutions and brands to step in and fill the void. So we're really moving from this point of data resignation where we felt like we had to hand over our data to this point of data reclamation where people want more control and they're going to claim back their data and the use of that data. So this point of data reclamation or relationship realignment is bringing us to a fork in the road. One way we're looking towards a data democracy. The other way, however, is data dystopia. Jonathan, break down those two different directions for us. Absolutely. Thanks, Christine. When we talk about a data democracy, we're talking about people making conscious choices about what happens with their data, how brands can treat that. Ultimately, the idea of democracy is to be able to vote for or against the ability for brands to do something and having the institutional strength so that we don't have large companies using our data in a way that we don't believe is ethically right. So that idea of democracy, people having a choice, and I think that conscious choice is so important. On the dystopia side of things, we could lose control. You've talked there about people feeling out of control in terms of that data. Now, that has just been our digital data that we've created so far. When we think about we extend that to the new type of data that we're going to be collecting in a world of Web3, in metaverses, as everything digitizes even further, the depth and breadth of that data and not having control over that and not being able to reverse some of those decisions, then that really feels quite dystopian. And people sort of feel helpless and beholden to whoever has collected that data. They can't opt back out. They don't have the institutions to protect them and ensure that things work the way that they believe that they should do. And why I think that's so important now is the fact that we are on the precipice of further tech change. I've mentioned Web3, metaverses there. That data is is only going to expand. We don't have that intuition because it's so new. Governments don't know exactly how this should work. We're busy figuring it out as we go. So I think going into that, with that conscious choice that we want to steer towards the democracy side of things, that we need that level of choice, that we need those guardrails, is really important. Otherwise, I think we could stumble unconsciously towards that dystopian end of the spectrum. So, Jonathan, you're right. We can't really talk about data without talking about the metaverse because data is going to be what keeps it running, keeps it evolving. What sort of data is the metaverse going to be accessing? It's not going to be the standard email addresses and social media contacts, is it? No, very much so. I mean, we're looking at a whole new set of data points. So if you look at, you know, Meta's version of the metaverse, and I think, you know, we could spend a lot of time debating what we mean by that. But if we think, if we, if we think initially about VR and AR, um, as a more immersive environment in which data can be collected, obviously in the case of VR, you're looking into a headset, but equally so that headset can be looking back at you. It can be looking at your eye movements, your facial expressions, how you're physically reacting in a way that at the moment your smartphone 
technically can do a bit through the camera, but this is a whole new level um, because of the experience that that headset is delivering. If we think about that in terms of AR, then you're layering in location data on top of that, how you're reacting, and indeed you're potentially changing what you perceive as a reality and indeed how you're reacting to that. All of that data can be used to inform either the game, but it, when it becomes more than a game, when it is your perception of reality because you're perhaps walking down the street and it's determining what information is being overlaid in the real world, that level of data goes a whole lot deeper than a cookie ID or a device ID or what we've been able to collect to date. If we think about other technologies that we already see, know and love, voice, you know, the speakers in our homes, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. All of those layers, that extra granularity of data with the amount of data that we can process so we can be so much more nuanced around how we treat that data. And with that comes possibilities for huge amounts of benefit but equally so, the scope for that to be used in a way that we don't want it to be as well. That feels quite scary. In particular for the three of us, we've all got young families that are on the internet every day. They're playing games like Roblox and other precursors to the metaverse. Kat, we've been tracking some Australian attitudes and perceptions surrounding the metaverse. What is the data showing? Are people worried about these sorts of things? So yes and no. We see concerns being raised by some older demographics. Um, however, when we look to Gen Z and Gen Y, they're looking forward to it. So in Australia, for instance, um, we have seen that 58% Gen Z are aware of it. 53% Gen Y are also aware of it. And they also get it. They see it as a shared virtual environment and they're also willing to participate so 60% Gen Z are saying that they're willing to work in the metaverse 75% are willing to to game in the metaverse and 78% of Gen Z are just willing to participate in general and these figures are quite consistent when we look at Gen Y as well. So that's really interesting for something that really hasn't been around for that long this concept of the metaverse They've cottoned onto it really quickly. They're really interested in it and they want to participate in it. At the other end of the spectrum, throughout our work on the Data Consciousness Project, we've come across a lot of smart people like Tristan Harris, who's an ex-Google ethicist and is now the co-founder and president of the Centre of Humane Technology over in the US, as well as Francis Horgan, who was the former employee of Meta, who came out and spoke out against the way that um, Meta and Facebook were leaning into the metaverse. And both of these people, as well as many more, have spoken out about an unregulated approach to the metaverse, fearing that people's data is going to be misused and abused, much like the dystopian perspective that Jonathan was referring to earlier. We know that people, not only in Australia but across the world, are worried about their data being misused. We've seen that in the study that we've done. They're also worried about the impact that technology can have on humanity. Jonathan, how do brands need to be leaning into this? So I think the key from a brand perspective is to understand. Start from your consumer, start from your audiences and have empathy for that. I think that fear 
that you mentioned there of data misuse is pretty universal. So I think there's a lot of basics that brands need to get right, as we've talked about in the study in terms of addressing people's data needs. There's some real basics around making it safe, making it easy. But beyond that, that's a universal starting point, but then the markets start to differ. And what we see is different data cultures emerging, different ways that societies broadly at a nation level are thinking about this. And I think that's influenced by demographics. I think that's influenced by systems of government. And I think it's also influenced quite a lot by local experience. So again, there's no substitute for doing your homework around the data culture of a particular market and within that, your audience. What has been going on in that market to influence that? Is there localized scandals? Are there government initiatives? Is there regulation that's guiding how people think around that? So there's no simple answer for brands. It's really about understanding that nuance of how people feel about this in a very localized context. One of the outputs of our original study was our data exchange formula. It was made up of significant factors that influence how comfortable a customer feels about handing over their data to the brand. And we were able to create and test this formula based on an analysis of over 50 scenarios in the original study and that were subsequently retested over the other studies that we've done across the years. The factors that came out were purpose, benefit, trust and control, and it was the addition of those factors and the way that we scored them, then divided by sensitivity, that gave us what we called the data exchange index. And the higher the data exchange index was, the more likely someone was going to feel very comfortable handing over their data towards a brand. Kat, can you take us through those factors? Yeah, sure. So the first one is purpose. So purpose is about understanding why the data is being collected and what the brand is going to do with it. Only 30% of Australians actually know why companies ask for personal information. The next one is benefit. Benefit is about what am I going to get in return for my data? So this is really important to understand because we know that in Australia, 63% agreed that in the future, I would expect organizations to use my personal data in a way that benefits me primarily, not themselves. And 74% think that in the future, I should be able to refuse to share my personal data with any organization, but still receive the same level of service. The next one is trust. So when we talk about trust here, we are talking about trusting companies to protect their data and also to use it in a trustworthy manner. In Australia, 64% of people say that misusing personal data is a main cause of mistrust in companies today. The next one is control. And of course, we know that control over our data is increasingly important for Australians. It's not just personal control either. Over three quarters of Australians think that the government needs to play a bigger role in regulating the use of personal data by companies. And organizations will need to demonstrate higher standards of ethical behavior as far as personal data is concerned. The next one is sensitivity. And sensitivity is a big issue 
as the types of data that brands collect is more intimate, as Christine and John mentioned before. So the new types of data being collected by brands is things like image recognition, so our faces, but also the rooms and objects that are around us. And there are images that can reveal a lot about us. Voice recognition and our physiological reactions based on smartwatch data. All these things are of concern to a large number of Australians, with 66% of Australians concerned about sharing their fingerprints or facial recognition. Jonathan, this formula has been incredibly useful to our clients in Australia. Have you been using the formula for any of your clients up in APAC? Absolutely. And I think more than the specifics of the numbers and the scoring that we can put against any one of those factors, which is which is good and useful. More broadly as a framework, really, I've seen some light bulbs go off and the penny drop in those client conversations. The first is when you're having a deep technical conversation about moving beyond cookies. So you're switching from DMPs to CDPs. You're thinking about your overall marketing stack, tech stack and things like that. There's an inherent assumption there that people will share data. Well, of course, we need the technology, we'll collect the data, and then we'll do this. And the data value exchange is a really useful point to say, yeah, clients will share data, but will they and why? The second part is really the recognition that a data value exchange is just one point in time. And we talk a lot about customer experience, client journey analysis. The fact is that data value exchanges happen throughout that journey, throughout that experience. It's not just a one-off. It's not getting people to sign into an app. It's not collecting certain site behavior. It's far more about thinking about why do people share data and why will they keep sharing that data and how do I manage that over the duration of my relationship with a customer. Again, that's so important and that's where we've really seen the formula be helpful as a framework to shape client thinking around how they're designing experiences and getting out of that pure technology box and starting to think in a far more human way. Jonathan, in our report, we wrap it up with some advice for clients based on our findings. Take us through the two main points. I think the first one is really quite simple. As with anything, it's a basic truth. It comes back to brands being really honest with their customers rather than hiding behind terms and conditions, as I think a, a lot of brands have done in the digital era um, up until this point, is being far more upfront about that. And when we're honest, when we're transparent about how we're using data and how that helps the customer, going back to that purpose and that benefit point from the data value exchange, then we can really get behind why we're personalizing why we're enhancing that experience. So hence that term that we've, that we've used with personalization as a product, as something that customers can choose and opt into and really therefore start to see benefits and appreciate why they're sharing that data. So then the second thing is really around the importance of customer communities. Brands developing their relationship with customers 
so that they're offering something more than just transactional, such that their customers feel that they're part of something that little bit bigger. Because as we see technology change, as we see regulation come in, there aren't going to be the big cookie pools to target. There isn't going to be that free flow of data as there has been in the past. Brands' ability to get their customers to share data with them will be critical to that brand's ability to succeed in this brave new world. And particularly as data becomes more decentralized, as consumers take greater control of that data, so it will be that much harder, but equally so the rewards to brands that are able to do that in the right kind of way will be so much greater because that direct relationship with consumers is what will really drive value, not only for the customers, but also for the brands. So as we see technology change, we move towards this idea of data decentralization. That relationship that brands can have and the communities that they can build and equally the partnerships that they can forge and how they treat data in a privacy conscious way. What that all boils down to is whether they can understand and harness that data value exchange. Can they take that formula that we found very early on in the data consciousness project several years ago, that formula that has stood the test of time? Think about how those elements are reshaped by the changing of not just technology, but consumer attitudes. The brands that can do that best, the brands that can design the right kind of data value exchanges, those are the ones that will succeed. Data consciousness has never been more important and we are just getting started. Jonathan, thank you so much for being our special guest. It's been amazing to work on the Data Consciousness Project with you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. That is the Data Consciousness Project for now. If you want more information, please reach out to us at Dentsu Intelligence at densu.com. Stay tuned for the next Dentsu Intelligence podcast episode. It's going to be something a bit different. It's going to be the future of food with Carolina Ferreira. I'm Christine McKinnon. And I'm Carolina Birch. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Adios. Adios.